Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. I'm Zach, and today we are thrilled to have Emma Dench with us. Emma is the McLean Professor of Ancient and Modern History and of the Classics at Harvard University, and was recently named Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She's the author of From Barbarians to New Men, Greek, Roman, and Modern Perceptions of People from the Central Apennines, and Romulus Asylum, Roman Identities from the Age of Alexander to the Age of Hadrian. Emma is currently completing Imperialism and Culture in the Roman World for Cambridge University Press, series Key Themes in Ancient History. Other current projects include a study of the retrospective writing of the Roman Republican past in classical antiquity. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So to get started, we like to ask all of our guests about this concept of inflection points or points where you felt you had to pivot in your personal or professional life. Uh, could you share one of those moments with us? Um, absolutely. Um, I have to choose one. And um, I think I'm going to go very, very young. This is probably not conventional. Um, so um, when I was seven, um, I learned to swim in the Roman baths at uh, in Bath in England. And um, when I look back on that uh, experience, um, I think that what that's what got me into Roman history. And without that um, sort of an accident, so my dad, my dad was a um, stage actor, and he was playing in Bath. So we all went to stay with him for a week in the summer. And I learned to swim in the Roman baths. And um, yeah, in some ways, that's that's why I'm why I do what I do today. What was it about the the baths that you were so was it the sense of being connected to something so ancient or the architecture? Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was that I mean, the the water smell. It smells strange. I mean, nowadays you're not allowed to because it comes straight out of the spring. It's a natural mm -hmm. spring, um, and um, nowadays you're you're not allowed to swim in it because they found amoebae in it, um, which are you know really bad for you. But the just the smell of it, you 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 feel that you're really connected to something very very ancient and. Um, so I think I literally drank the water. Whoa. <laughs> and now, now you Look know. Look at me now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do you still feel that sense of um, connection when you're studying Rome, or do you think it's been replaced by something else? That's a really, really good question. Um, um, I do and I don't. I think my um, – I grew to – I think my knee-jerk reaction as an adult is that I really hate the Romans. They're very, very hard to relate to. Mm. I mean, they're not they're not nice people. Um, they're not very nice to women. They're not very nice to foreigners. They're incredibly class conscious. They're a slave society. Um, and so my knee-jerk reaction is just to find them really repulsive. But then they they get at you. So sometimes when you're reading Roman literature, um, they they see something sort of super thoughtful and that you really can relate to and um, and so you're you're sucked back in again. So um, going into kind of your professional life and, and decisions you made, so you moved kind of you hopped across the pond in 2007 um, to Harvard from you were at Oxford and had been been there for a while and then we were teaching 
as well. Can you just kind of talk about what led to that movement over to America? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually in London. Um, I was I taught at the University of London for fourteen years, and um, I so, so so again thinking about inflection points. In um, I spent the year two thousand two to. Uh, three at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And if you're a foreigner and you have a fellowship there, everybody thinks you're trying to move. And um, I'm always very perverse. So I was absolutely adamant that I didn't want to move. And I had my husband and our son who was quite young. He was three. And my son loved it. My husband found... Princeton a little bit boring. <laughs> um, we had no intention of moving. But when we got home to London, this is a very interesting life lesson for me. It was as if everything had changed and um, nothing was quite what I'd what I'd remembered. Um, even my the college I taught at in London that I I loved. I just I just got back and nothing nothing had stayed the same and. Um, that um, that made me start thinking that I wanted to look over here, mm -hmm. and um, so I did. <laughs> so um, your talk tonight, we'd like to talk about a little bit, and uh, the title is "What Can the Romans Do for Us?" And you've already mentioned a lot of the uh, problems with ancient Rome. You mentioned obviously the blatant sexism, slavery. Um, other other examples are. Uh, for, for listeners who don't know, is that Romans practiced something called exposure, where unwanted babies were left exposed in the street to die. Fathers could enslave their children. They could put them in chains. You know, this is this society in many ways, and in, in, in astounding ways, is very, very different from our own. Um, what can the Romans do for us, even considering all of these very concerning things that we know about their society today? I think I think for me um, what they what they can do and what I'm going to try to um, put across in the talk is um, stop you in the in your in your tracks and precisely what I was talking about before that they do all these horrible horrible things um, and then they can be most amazingly thoughtful. Um, relatable to and and very very profound and I um, one of the aspects of the Romans that impresses me so much is that they can carry complexity in their heads. Um, they were young people of your age, of tertiary education, teenager to tertiary education, um, were taught to, they had to construct arguments from multiple perspectives. And um, I... I find it, it's like a sort of, I, I almost want to start a slow thinking movement inspired by the Romans that um, they can teach us a lot about not um, things being, things are generally not X or Y. And even the Romans aren't just X, they're X and Y and all the um, uh, letters of the alphabet. Um, so my inspiration from the Romans is a kind of slow thinking, um, slowing down and really trying to um, understand a different people that we're sort of related to and not, um, but to try to understand them in all their complexity. Um, that is something we want to talk about more. Um, I'm in a Roman history class right now, Skip. 
um, has taken a Roman history class in his history major. Um, and one thing that struck me as someone who's really interested in American politics, American political philosophy, is the influence of Rome and the sort of recurring themes. One thing that I that really comes to mind is this sort of idea of pastoral virtue, and especially the connection between uh, King Canatus and um, General Washington, who King Canatus and both both men um, conquered and then went back to their farm, gave up power. What are other ways in which you see Roman society mapping over to the U.S., either culturally or something that you know a surprising way in which Rome influenced or Romans influenced um, America? Beautiful. I mean, so many ways. Um, I'm speaking in the Athenaeum, <laughs> and that's um, it's it's super interesting that the Athenaeum, the Athenian place, um, is uh, the um at the end um, shows that it's a Latin word. Um, so the Romans, they they are, and this will come across tonight, I hope. They are, they are major cultural appropriators. It's not, you know, they 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 they're not sort of um, great in the way that they use. Um, uh, other cultures, um, but in the case of the Athenaeum, that's the um, that's their idea of what um, Greek culture is, and particularly rhetorical culture, having visiting professors in, etc. It's a really fitting spot for this mm. talk. So you mentioned um, the cultural appropriation of, of Rome and, and all the things, as you know, as, as as the Romans would conquer a nation, they would bring back their gods. They would engage in practices like that. And it, 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 you mentioned in, in Romulus's asylum that that ancient Rome was self-consciously multicultural, and that that's a really big part of it. Um, and yet, at the same time, you see a lot of ancient Romans kind of grappling with this concept of Romanitas, or what it is to be Roman, what it means to be Roman. How did Romans manipulate all of these different uh, factors and uh, different uh, every every kind of different the multiculturalism. How did they manipulate that for social and political gain? Um, they do they do many things with the with the multiculturalism. Um, I mean, they um, thinking about political social gain. I think one of the really interesting ways to think about Roman multiculturalism is is the is the army. Um, and um, people don't always, people think about the, if, you th if, if I say Roman army, you tend to think killing machine. Um, but they um, historically, um, as you said, Skip, when they, uh, when they conquer people, they um, quite often make treaties with the, the people that um, demand troops off them on an annual basis. And it's, you know, it's not nice, but it's genius. Um, because you, what do you do, uh, what do you achieve by doing that? Well, for a start, you, um, you basically uh, channel off um, men of fighting age from that local society, so they're less likely to rebel. Um, and you also, um, using basically ethnic troops, they use ethnic troops um, as auxiliaries to the Roman army, you know, in really large numbers. You've got a really powerful fighting force um and you also display when you go on the field you've got um your ethnic troops all laid up it's quite a sort of panorama of of your empire maybe as a follow-up to that um how do you see that the notions of you know romans struggling with romanitas what it means to be roman kind of playing out today with you see today in the the geopolitical sphere sweeping nationalism people uh, reacting to globalization and uh, rising up and kind of 
kind of the jingoistic uh, uh, and xenophobic uh, movements. What? How do you see that in relation to ancient Rome and the Romanitas? Um, it it if you if you've read like both of you have if you've read a lot of Roman Roman history nothing the terrifying thing is that nothing you see today surprises you um so the Romans had you know rhetorics of pure blood etc um and you just you just sort of you, I, I, it makes me absolutely exasperated um I, I'm exasperated when the Romans do that, and I'm far, far more exasperated when we do that. I think that um, Philip V of Macedon um, had it right um, in the um, late 3rd century BCE when he commented on the Romans that it was their practice of um, enfranchising freed slaves um, that had made them so able to expand. Um, in general, um, you know, multiculturalism, living together, that is that is got to be a strength. So you said earlier that you hate the Romans, and it seems like you kind of alluded to why. Is it because of the sort of um, atrocities that they, the slaves, the treatment of women, um, you know, the sort of gruesome violence and, and paternalistic nature. Is that sort of why you hate the Romans? Yeah, pretty much. I think I think there were the big, big reasons. And then particularly as a woman, there are the um this this the, the smaller, I think what we'd now call microaggressions, the things that, that you're you're reading something and you're, particularly things I was made to read at school and you just want to throw the book at the wall. There's a <laughs> there's a in super annoying letter from the younger Pliny in the first century CE um, talking about his wife uh, well, uh, and what she was doing while he was reciting his literary works. And she was um, modestly sitting behind a, a curtain and um, but she was living it. Um, so she was she was swooning when <laughs> when he swooned and she was frightened for him for the audience reaction. <laughs> so little microaggressions like that make me as a professional woman make me want to throw the book at the wall. And how does that affect your work? I mean, do you try to convey that to the audience? Do you try to form that into your argument or is it um, a complication when you're doing the work? I think it's a, um, I think it's a great asset. I, I, um, for a start, I, 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 I usually can't suppress my anger, and I don't think you should. I think you should be able to relate to people that you're writing about. Um, and then I, I've always used those emotional reactions as a way into. Um, trying to understand better you know like like where are these people coming from things like it doesn't ex it doesn't forgive things but but knowing um typically how and this is it gets even more horrific but how young women were typically when they got married so there was typically a huge age gap um etc so it channel it I, I channel my my anger and my energy into wanting to understand better what the structures are. That, that's a really interesting comment because a lot of what we hear today is about how um, people can't relate to things that make them really angry or emotional, but it seems like you it's like the opposite for you, that you're using that anger to kind of prompt you even more to understand them. Mm -hmm. How does that, um, can you maybe dig a little bit deeper into that or give an insight into, um, I guess, more of the motivation? 
That's that's such an interesting question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think in general, I'm I'm the sort of person that um, it, it never stops me being angry. But I I really want to I want to understand um, um, why people have you know, e.g views that make me angry just in general in life it's just something I don't know maybe I don't know how much it's a gender thing to be honest that you sort of you want to not exactly be a peacemaker but you want to you want to sort of understand then perhaps be able to use it in your in your day job Hmm. so you spoke a little bit about your own agenda as it were in your in your own academic work um one of the questions I had is is going back and this is a struggle that many historians do have but all of the sources that you use, especially in ancient ancient times, is kind of a more limited sample. Um, how do you kind of wrestle with the fact that many of those sources might have agendas of their own? And how do you kind of account for that in your research? Um, an example could be a Roman declamation or somewhere where uh, an orator is arguing in favor of one issue idea or client, something like that. Um, I think that's a really great question. I think my work, um, and increase, I don't think I always knew this is what I was looking for, but increasingly I'm conscious that what I'm looking for is, um, I like like to try and reconstruct um, the broader conversation. So what I think, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, what we typically see with sources is just this little nugget that is usually incredibly partial. And I just try to, I often try to use my, both my, you know, analytical skills and my imagination to reconstruct what what is that little little nugget, little snippet responding to? What is it talking to? What are the other voices in the argument? I sometimes say it's a bit like, I mean, then this will sound really, really old-fashioned because nobody tunes a radio nowadays. <laughs> but if you, we've still got old-fashioned radios at home. When you tune and you hear this sort of fuzz and then you, then it goes to something very clear. But there's, you know, there's all sorts of other voices out there. That's 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 sort of what I try to do. Um, now, to, to take a step back from the Romans themselves, you're also the dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Um, when thinking about academia and and when you're teaching or you know directing PhD students, um, what's the intended audience for academia, and how do you um, when does academic work get to the public, and and is it even intended to? That it's a, that's a, another million dollar question. Um, I think um, so. I think particularly when I'm working um, with graduate students, I think that first, um, first and foremost, you're trying to work out, and and this goes on. It doesn't stop. It goes on in in professional academic life. But you you try to work out what you think, what you think's going on. And that, um, and often it, um, that, that usually takes me into, into a deep rabbit hole. And I, and I often actually can't really talk to anybody. Um, I'm quite unusual when I'm in the, in the midst of trying to work out what I think's going on. I just, I go very deep and it's not, I can't be very interesting. And then after that, I think um, that's when, in order really to communicate, um, when you really feel that you've understood, um, then I think it's your responsibility to try to explain as clearly as possible. And I think it's, um, I'm, I'm very into the idea that you 
um, you're obliged to not to dumb stuff down. You can make things very clear, but you mustn't dumb down complexity. Um, I think we'll all be dead if we dumb down complexity. So kind of in drawing some more lessons from the ancient Romans and everything like that, you've, you've talked about using the blind spots of Rome to see the blind spots in our own society and that kind of being an important role that you feel you have and an important role for all historians. Can you talk a little bit about what blind spots maybe in today's society you've kind of been alerted to by observing the blind spots uh, that the Romans had? Um, I think we have I think we have a lot of um, blind spots. I mean, one big blind spot, I think, in this country, frankly, is um, is class. Um, and um, especially especially this is partly as a Roman historian. So if you're a Roman historian, you are just so acutely aware of um, hierarchies um, and um, snobbery, um, etc. that resonates somewhat with historically what Britain's been like um and when I when I came when I first came over here I was struck by how I feel that in Britain um people talk about class all the time it's just um you know it's it's not necessarily something that you want to you, you want to preserve class um boundaries and whatever but but people are very conscious of it and they they articulate it and then um, certainly um, on the East Coast, I don't know how different it is here. Um, it's really, people just don't talk about it and they don't, they talk about race, but they don't always see the, there's often an intersection between race and class. And I think one of the aspects that I try and really, I really hope, especially that the students I work with see is a little more of um, how class operates in this country. Um, just one more question before we have to wrap up. Um, you were the recipient of a Harvard College professorship for 2010 to 2015 and recognized for outstanding contribu contributions to undergraduate teaching, mentoring, and advising. Um, what's something you try to do well as a teacher, and what's something you wish um, students would do in your classes? Oh, very good questions. Um, so what I try to do um, as, a, as a teacher is to... Um, I don't know, to kind of, to find, to, to help um, students um, relate to ancient Rome and to find, to find it helpful in their daily lives, to understand enough about it, not to be superficial, um, but to be able to sort of um, just use it to be able to stand back and reflect a little bit. What I wish students would do is come to office hours more. <laughs> <laughs> I I love talking to students and I just um I, I do everything I can to try and um encourage them to to come to office hours and I wish they'd come more. Gotcha. Um well unfortunately we are running out of time and the last question we always ask our guests is um what is your personal definition of success? And then for students or anyone listening, what advice would you give um in pursuing that definition of success? I think I'm, I mean, it's something that I aspire to do and I certainly don't achieve um, is, is, is um, to live a good life. Um, I think to love and to laugh and to be very kind and considerate um, of other people, um, to do what you can to help um, the world's problems. I think all that, that sort of general living a good life 
Um, I think um, what I would tell students is sort of it's kind of easy to say, harder to do, is to is to be reflective um, and to um, to use your studies to be um, aware of yourself and others around you. Wonderful. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you again so much, Emma, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.